I'm Rafilo Mpakanyane standing in for Azania and of course I'll be with you until 3pm this afternoon and because it is a Wednesday what we do in the final hour of the show is to have a masterclass so um Please do, and I see the messages regarding today's masterclass have also started coming through. So we are taking your calls. We are taking your messages throughout this hour. Um, and today's masterclass is on COVID-19 vaccines. We're delving into everything you need to know about them, everything you've been curious about regarding them, and, of course, clarifying some matters of concern. I referenced um, an SMS that we, I received on weekend breakfast just this past Saturday. A listener wanting to know if taking their usual nerve pain medication uh, before getting the jab affected the efficacy of vaccines and you know because we don't always have a pick up the phone and dial that cell phone number relationship type of relationship with our gps um this is your opportunity to ask those types of questions as well to my guest and of course call us on 011-883-0702 my masterclass guest is Professor Helen Rees, uh, who's widely recognized for her work as a global health practitioner. She's been appointed as chair and member of many international scientific committees and boards and has been actively involved in national, uh, the national and regional as well as global response efforts to COVID-19, including the development of COVID-19 vaccines, the potential rollout and utilization. Um, the credits are extensive, but of course, uh, as well as chairing the South African Health, Pro- uh, Health Products Regulatory Authority SAPRA board, she's also a member of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 and a member of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 Vaccines and chairs the MAC COVID-19 Variant and Vaccines Technical Working Group. All of that to say, I think uh, we are speaking to a, perf- a person who is perfectly, perfectly positioned um, to answer our questions about uh, COVID. COVID-19 vaccines and of course to give us some insights into the developing science, the developing or the ongoing work behind them. Good afternoon and thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate you availing yourself for a full hour. Welcome to the program, uh, Prof. Helen Rees, Chair of SAPRA. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me and I'm delighted to, to do my best on, on giving a masterclass. I look forward to receiving the question. I just want to say how important it is because I think many people, as you said, many people are coming up with questions, uncertainties. You know, a lot of people want to have the vaccine, but they're nervous. Uh, You know, we need as, as scientists, we need to be able to present the case and to make the arguments and to answer questions and to be very honest in the way we do it. So I think yeah. it's great that you're doing it. Thank you so much. No, well, thank you. It's, uh, I guess, country duty is what we can call it. But uh, as, you've, as you've just alluded to, I really admire um, uh, science journalists uh, and health journalists who've made it their job, right, to make all of this kind of information uh, um, um easy to digest for readers, for listeners. And I think, I'd hazard to say, there definitely isn't enough uh, in that cohort of journalists uh, and they've got that work cut out for them. And then we're to your point about scientists and their ability to answer questions um, around COVID-19 vaccines or to disseminate information around COVID-19 vaccines. That's another key part, right? You know your jobs, you know all the technical stuff and the jargon, but it's all about 
not uh, transmitting all that information that uh, is in your papers and reports and in your heads <laughs> so that the layperson can sit down at dinner or over lunch, you know, or over a co- uh, an ice cream with family and friends and say, oh, no, this is what I heard this afternoon on the radio. And it makes sense to that third person or that fourth person that they're passing the information on to. I totally agree. And the other issue that we have to be um, aware of is that the science is changing so rapidly. We're getting new vaccines all the time. We're getting new variants all the time. We're getting new data all the time. So being able to update people and to to give accurate information um, as it changes is really important. So, Prof. Reese, let's start at the beginning. you know, for maybe the kid at the back of the class who missed what's been happening for the last 18 months, December of 2019 or thereabouts, we start to hear murmurings of this new virus coming out of China. By January, it spread, or by January, Feb of 2021, it spread beyond our borders. Here at home, uh, it's a couple of months before we have our first confirmed case. And then at the end of March 2020, the president addresses the country and the first uh, or the initial state of of emergency is declared in South Africa and the scientific and medical community is uh, the gears start churning and they're spurred into action. Would you just recap for us and summarize what the global effort to develop an effective vaccine against the novel coronavirus has been and is and, uh, you know, the, the various quarters that came to the party to make this happen? Yes. Uh, So if we go back uh, and, you know, it's a recent history, but it feels very long. And but let's go back to the beginning, as you said, with uh, when we first uh, heard about the Wuhan virus. Um, I was actually in a very large meeting at the World Health Organization where we were talking to on video uh, Chinese scientists. This is before we had the name of the virus, the name of the disease. And we were hearing from them what they were experiencing and what they were witnessing. Um, and uh, it was at that meeting that, in fact, the name of the COVID, of COVID-19 was announced that this is what we would call this disease and the SARS-CoV-2 as the name of the virus. Yes. Um, but yes. closely related to that, um, I'll just share one story with everybody, is that I also, one of the committees that I chair, which is a global committee, is for a group that looks at emerging pathogens that can cause this kind of pandemic yes. and invests in um, vaccines. And we had an emergency meeting in uh, March um, and we to say, should we be investing in new vaccine development for this brand new virus? And I really do remember that one of the members of that committee said, well, we don't know if this is going to be this pandemic virus we've all been worrying about. But just in case it is, Mm. let's do a dry run and invest the money. So from early on uh, last year, people were investing money in vaccine development. And some of the vaccines developed uh, that were invested in right at the beginning are now the very vaccines that we're using. So the answer is it, it started really as soon as we recognized that we might indeed have a pandemic virus on our hands. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, that, you know, that's a, it's also an interesting um, aspect to your work, the fact yeah, being a member of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness innovation and knowing that as as this hyper-globalized and developed world, the specter of uh, um, pandemics uh, such as these, in fact, uh, hangs over us uh, all the time, pretty much.
Can you talk to us? Yes, it does. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And, and perhaps I should just say one other thing is that the spectre hangs over us and these and probably people have heard this word zoonotic. These are these these uh, in, uh, viruses that jump from animal reservoirs into humans. And that's what we've been worrying about. And indeed, we are seeing more and more of this. If people remember, I'm sure people remember the Ebola outbreaks, MERS and the original SARS. So we're seeing more of this jumping from animal reservoirs into humans. And it's these kinds of jumps that really worries us in terms of these pandemic viruses that then change and spread in this uncontrolled manner into humans. Yeah. So we've covered the beginning in, um, uh, yeah, we've covered the beginning. And I want to now, if we can look at the vaccine, um, the, the process of uh, creating these, uh, the, the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, first, who took part in that process? Um, you know, if you just remind us once again, it, it seems as though we are going over the things that we already know. But uh, in fact, that's part of the assumption, right? So that's part of the problem, making assumptions about equitable distribution of quality information when it comes to um, public health matters. So if you can take us to the beginning, uh, to, to the very start of the vaccine development process, who took part in it and uh, it, in terms of the global effort? And then touch on why it's crucial for vaccine uh, development drives such as these to have equitable representations uh, when it comes to populations, uh, race, ethnicities and genders, right, during research, during trial stages. Yes. So, so if we go back about, who, you know, who took part. Um, so there are a whole range of players took part in vaccine development. I mean, traditionally, many of the vaccines that we now use have been developed by the pharmaceutical industry. So they clearly have been a player in this. Um, and it's the pharmaceutical industry really from around the world that have quite quickly moved into the development of, of vaccines. But in addition to that, um, some governments have invested large amounts of, of money in vaccine development. Uh, if you look at uh, countries such as the US um, and the UK and European countries, but countries like India, and indeed in South Africa, uh, the South African government through the Medical Research Council has also invested money. But so it's a combination of pharmaceutical industry and governments. And the people who have been doing these vaccine trials have also included many academics. And if we take South Africa as an example, uh, many of us, including my own institute here, where we're based in the middle of Hillbrow, um, many of us were previously doing research into other vaccines, some childhood vaccines, TB vaccines, HIV vaccines. And many of us as researchers then immediately changed our focus to the development of COVID-19 vaccines. And South Africa has been a major country in doing these clinical trials that have allowed us to develop vaccines. So those are the role players and the academic institutions, as well as the pharmaceutical industry, are the people who have done much of the research. Mm. How how do we get to a stage where um, all this, this, this global effort delivers vaccines um, that have been approved for emergency use so quickly? Because you've mentioned how usually pharmaceuticals or independent or um, uh, private pharmaceutical companies are often the ones 
ones who lead the charge in developing vaccines. And from what we understand, what I understand as a layperson is that these things tend to take years and years and years. Lots of research and development money sunk into them. So when it comes to COVID, explain to us how um, this was uh, this was uh, able to be um, declared safe and ready for emergency use by everyone. Yes. Well, if we start right at the beginning, when you have something like a a new virus, the first thing you have to do is to actually identify the virus and be able to identify its genetic makeup and how it works. And that was done very quickly by scientists in China who shared that genetic makeup of of the, the virus with the world. That allowed people to then look in the laboratory at um, how they could develop a vaccine that would be able to attack that virus. Um, and I think many people will have seen these pictures of the COVID uh, virus with those, those nobles all over it, which we call the spike. And that's what attaches to cells. So yes. many of the vaccines have focused on what's called the spike protein and saying, how do we create a vaccine that will interfere with that spike and so stop this virus being able to easily uh, penetrate cells. So that was the, the sort of the second part. And then people looked really looked on their shelves and say, what vaccines do we have? So we have well-established vaccine, what we call vaccine platforms. These are um, uh, the ways that we make um, vaccines uh, are based on different platforms. So we've got some that are incredibly well-established. We've used for years in childhood vaccines. Can we make a vaccine using those? And all the way through to, can we make vaccines using brand new platforms? And many of you will be familiar now with the Pfizer uh, vaccine, which is what's called an RNA platform. This is new, although it's been in development for 10 years. Mm. So that's the sort of the next thing that people said, what platform can we use to develop a vaccine? And having done that, a lot of tests are first done in the laboratory to, to look at uh, the safety in the laboratory, to look at uh, uh, that, you know, whether it's likely to be toxic, whether it's likely to be successful. And that also involves animal studies. And once you've gone through all of that, you then move into human studies. Yeah. And the first part, uh, the, the phase one, we call them, is where we look at what is a good dose? Does it cause an immune response? Does it appear safe? Do we get side effects or reactions? Um, and if all of those things look very promising, it will go into the next phase, phase two. And here we start either with 50 to 100 people moving up to several hundred people. And we ask the same questions. Does it appear safe? Are there reactions to it? Does it produce this immune response that we want to see? And to a, to a small extent, can we see if it's, are there indications that it might work against the virus? And then these great big phase three trials where we've had tens of thousands of people, 30,000, 40,000 people who volunteer for these studies. And some of the half of, usually half of the recipients will get the active vaccine and half will get a dummy vaccine. And then we can see in, in, in the clinical trial setting, is this vaccine, does it appear to work and protect against, uh, um, against COVID? Mm. Um, so what your question was, why so fast? Sure. So those are the oh, phases. And how? Yeah, good questions. Because some vaccines, like the polio vaccine, took uh, many, many, many years to develop, and we're still struggling to develop really good TB vaccines and um, and struggling to develop an HIV vaccine. So some 
some viruses, some bacteria that end up being much more difficult to produce a vaccine for than others. But usually, I mean, a short time for a vaccine would be six or seven years. And as I say, longer times can be 20, 30 years, even longer. Sure. Um, but with this, in a pandemic, that whole process I explained to you was concertinaed, was pushed close together so that the phases of development, particularly the clinical phases of development, went very rapidly overlapped. So we went from a phase one, we didn't have a gap to analyze the data where we sat back and thought, and can we improve? We, we went straight into a phase two and straight into phase threes. So all of the phases of vaccine development were undertaken, but they were compressed mm -hmm. because of the absolute urgency of the need for a vaccine. All right. When we come back from um, this break, Prof. Reese, we're going to take some listener questions, of which there are many. And of course, uh, we'll carry on the conversation uh, and we'll carry on our masterclass conversation on the COVID-19 vaccine. 702 Masterclass. It is going on 1426 on the Azania Musaka show. We're in a masterclass on COVID-19 vaccines. And joining us to have this conversation is Professor Helen Reese. Uh, we're addressing myriad uh, myriad questions or points of clarification that you have for her. Let's start off by playing this voice note for you, Prof. Hi, Rafilwe. Please can you ask Dr. Netling for me this question. I had a Pfizer vaccine and then six, just five weeks after I've had it, my husband developed COVID and I was fixed exposed, obviously. But I just want to find out, should I wait then 30 days before my second dose or should I just go? I don't have symptoms. Um, I did test it. I was negative. But I just want to be cautious. Mm, Prof. Reese, your answer to that? It's a very good question. Um, well, the first thing to say is, as you know, Pfizer has the, the two doses, yeah. 42 days apart, and you're, the, the listener is at five weeks afterwards. Um, we know that a single dose isn't as effective as two doses. You, with a single dose, your immune system is sort of primed, and it's, it says it's, we, we're kidding the immune system to say, Here's the virus. It's not really the virus, but we're giving it a little bit of protein, presenting it to the immune system. And the immune system says, I am now going to in future recognize the virus when it comes in because I've seen this little bit of protein that is part of the virus. Yeah. So when you do the second boost, you get a big boost in, in your immune system because it's already remembering. It says, I remember this and it comes up and then you get a, a, a very effective protection. Now, in your case, uh, because you um, have tested negative, uh, even though your husband's uh, positive, I would encourage you that if you're asymptomatic, uh, when you hit your 42 days to go and get your second dose. Okay. Uh, so I would say go and do it. When people do have symptoms of COVID or they test positive, the advice that we give is to say don't vaccinate at that time because already your immune response is in full gear mm -hmm. fighting off COVID. Now, if we give a vaccine, we're going to give it an even higher gear um, and that can create more side effects from the vaccine. So uh, we, we discourage people from having it when you actually have COVID and we say wait for four weeks after your symptoms have finished and then you can be vaccinated. All right. Let's go to the phone lines. Mandla and Randberg is, uh, is on the line. Welcome to the program, Mandla. What's your question for Prof. Reese? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Okay, um, sure. my, my, my family and I are on, uh, almost uh, on, uh, ready to make a decision in terms of vaccination. And I remember there was a time 
where uh, the JJ uh, uh, vaccination uh, uh, um, option was recalled, and now we we sort of like in between in terms of Pfizer or JJ. Um, I'd like to know what the what the scientist thinks on which which uh, one would actually be help us make a decision. And secondly, um, I remember there were uh, 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 well, a while ago a couple of deaths reported regarding uh, uh, vaccination. Uh, I think mean, people being vaccinated. I also want to know that uh, um, <clears throat> since there are no postmortems being done on. Uh, uh, people that die of vaccination, uh, how do we then explain or how do we then uh, uh, know that the, vac- that the vaccines are not, not actually associated with uh, those deaths? Thank you. Okay, quite, uh, quite, a few, quite a lot in that question from Mandla. Um, Prof. Reese, please go ahead. Well, let me start, first of all, by J&J or Pfizer. Um, and uh, I think it's a question that I'm sure lots of people are saying, which one? Mm-hmm. Uh, the answer is you go as soon as you're eligible and get whichever. These are both very good vaccines. We've got data now from uh, the healthcare workers who received the J&J vaccine, for example, um, and we can see that it's 96%, 96%, around 96% protective against death, um, and nearly 70% protective against severe disease. Um, the protection against death is very similar in Pfizer and, and in J&J, um, and both of them will give you protection against severe disease, which is really what we want to stop. We want to stop at the moment people getting really, really sick and obviously dying, but also going into hospital beds and overwhelming the hospitals. So the answer is both are very good vaccines um, and you should take whichever one is available to you in the in the site to which you're referred. So strong encouragement to to take the, the vaccines. But, but it's a fair question because all the time we're looking at the vaccines as the variants change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, now, I think everyone is aware of the fact that we've had, if you remember before, just after Christmas, uh, we had a big discussion because we developed a variant, which is a, when the virus changes, it mutates, and the variant was called the beta variant. Um, and this appeared to be more resistant to the protective effect of vaccines. Sure. Um, and now we have what's taken over is what's called the Delta variant. Now, the Delta variant appears to be more susceptible to vaccines, but it's much more transmissible. It's much, much easier if I'm sitting next to you for me to spread it to you mm. uh, than the, the beta variant or the original variant. So the other question that we're continuously looking at is as new variants have arisen, um, which vaccines are all the vaccines as effective against new variants as previously? And the good news is that both J&J and Pfizer are effective against the, the Delta variant. And so the, for the first part of the question, the answer is go and take whichever vaccine is available. Uh, but, but trust us that we're looking at the data all the time. And if we get a new variant and something changes we, and we need to change our guidance, we will change it. If we decide for any of the vaccines or for all of the vaccines later on that we need to give you a booster in a year's time, we will be on top of the science and we'll let you know. But for now, either one will be, will be good. Prof. Reese, the, can the we... Concern of- 
Prof. Ruiz, can we put a pin in that just for a moment? We're going to dip into headline, uh, the headline update. But when we come back, we're going to answer the second part of Mandla's question, which is very important. Um, and I'll be sure to just reiterate, reiterate it and let you uh, have the time to respond to it. It's 1440. 702. Masterclass. We continue our masterclass conversation with Professor Helen Rees this afternoon. Plenty of questions are still coming our way. Prof Rees, thank you so much for holding. Thanks for your patience. Um, when Before we went to the break, we you were answering Mandla's question. His family, uh, Mandla and his family were deciding on which vaccine to go for. And you essentially said, take what is available to you immediately. The second part of this question uh, is um, one that we've seen bubbling up over the last few weeks and essentially he was saying, well, what's your question, what's your answer regarding post-vaccination deaths and you'll have to address the veracity of those um, and the fact that those stories have been making the rounds including um, uh, another person here saying I personally know two people who've died just days after getting the Pfizer vaccine and we've seen those kinds of things swirling just help us understand what is going on there what's possibly going on and Mandla was also asking um, or saying uh, that uh, because there are no post-mortems uh, to verify COVID-19 vaccines, are we not de- are we not working um, uh, in the dark in this instance? No, and it's, it is one of the most important questions that people ask. So let me start to answer. Uh, if you remember, I said with these great big phase three trials where we test whether a vaccine works or not, we also look at safety, and we look at are there any any things that we identify that are peculiar or you when you look at the, the study as it goes on, are you seeing more of some sort of safety signal in the vaccine arm than you are in the control arm? <laughs> Do we see those signals? Um, and so, so far with all the vaccines that are coming onto the market, they appear from those big trials to be very safe. But for all vaccines, not just COVID vaccines, but any new vaccine, we continuously monitor safety because what we're also looking for are very, very rare uh, safety signals um, that might be telling us that this vaccine is associated with something that is rare so that you're only going to see it when you roll a vaccine out into millions of people. And remember now worldwide, it's not just South Africa having vaccines. Worldwide, we've, we've rolled out now um, hundreds of millions, more than uh, of, of vaccines, and the billions now of vaccines have been rolled out. And so we're able to see, are there any safety signals that are very rare, but might be associated with the vaccine? How do we do that? Well, we look at the any reported deaths that might occur, um, and we also combine our data with global data um, and the World Health Organization is, plays a very central role in this. So all countries will share any data around a rare side effect or a death um, uh, with the World Health Organization. Um, <clears throat> but what we, we also need to remember is if I took a million people in South Africa today, let's take the over 60s, for example, our mm-hmm. first group that we wanted to immunize. Some people will have a heart attack. Some people will have a stroke. Some people uh, will have a rash or a, a, a clot. And that might be just because people are over 60, over 70, over 80, they are going to get those conditions anyway. So what you have to then say is, are we seeing more of something 
in this group than we would have expected in the normal population. Because we do expect, as we roll out millions of vaccines, to see that some of these serious events will occur and that some people will die. Mm -hmm. So you then have to do what's called a causality assessment. Do we think, given the numbers and what we're seeing, that this is actually associated with the vaccine or is what we are seeing what we would have seen anyway in the normal population? Um, and so I think that that is, is extremely important. Mm. Um, and we collectivize all of that globally. So in terms of, of do we monitor deaths? Yes, we do. Do we look at whether they, they can be associated with the vaccine. We certainly do. We do that at a national level and we do that with the, with global role players such as WHO. Um, and then we're able to see if there are rare side effects. Mm -hmm. If there are rare side effects, we then explain them to people and we say these are very, very, very rare, uh, but this is what could happen. And if there's a particular side effect, even if it's very, very rare, that somebody with a pre-existing condition might be more prone to, then we might have um, you know, more um, sort of guidance about sure. taking or not taking yeah. the vaccine. Well, to that point, we've got Andre from Randberg on the line. And I think uh, what he speaks to, what he's calling about is uh, regards uh, is related to what you've just touched on. Welcome to the program, Andre. What's your question? Good afternoon, Lucille. Good afternoon, Professor. How Hi. are you guys doing? We're fantastic. Um, thank you. Thank you. Fine, thank you. I suffer from Graves' disease. Um, I am on hormone replacement therapy. And I'd like to know... What kind of interaction would there be with regards to the autoimmune disease that I already have and the vaccination that would, would obviously need to take place? Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Andre. Your answer, Prof? Yeah, a very good question. Um, and and you, you, you're suffering from Graves' disease, as you say, which is an autoimmune disease. And there are many other autoimmune diseases, but many other diseases. Uh, so the first thing that I would say is anybody who's got what we call a comorbidity, a condition, and you're not sure whether you should take it, you can ask when you go to the vaccination site, or you can ask uh, if you've got a doctor who's treating you, you can ask that doctor. But for virtually all of the comorbidities that we're seeing, including um, autoimmune diseases, we are really encouraging people to have the vaccine because what we're seeing is that many of these comorbidities, high blood pressure, diabetes, got immunosuppression where the immune system isn't working as well for one reason or another, that those people are much more at risk of COVID, they're more at risk of severe disease, and they're more at risk of dying from COVID. So we're really encouraging people to get uh, to get the vaccination. In fact, we would actually single you out and say, please, mm. of all the people, we would really encourage you to do that. Yeah. There are very few conditions where we would say don't get the vaccination, but it's worth talking to your doctor about. So for example, if you have cancer and you're on uh, drugs to, that are really suppressing your immune system at the moment, have a discussion with your doctor. There might be a suggestion that you wait until you're off a particular treatment so that your immune system has a chance to recover. Right. But just have that discussion. But for the vast majority of people with these comorbidities, we're encouraging you to get the vaccine. Linda and Parkhurst, very quickly, I imagine the prof has just touched on uh, your uh, yeah. point of concern, low immune system, and you're worried about getting vaccinated. Am I correct? Well, yes, um, something like that. So I had my first vaccination. I, I am on medication to suppress my immune system. So I'm on the likes of the, of the methotrexate, Humira, and um, I'm due to get my second vaccine um, on Sunday. I've actually just been called by Discovery because they want to cancel it. 
and reschedule it. But I want to get my second one. Now, my question is, I've been reading a couple of articles and there is some question whether people like myself will actually develop uh, immunity because my immune system is being suppressed um, by medication. So should I, you know, what do I need to do to check that? What should I be doing? All right. Your answer, Prof? Yeah, very good question. Um, So, as I say, we're looking all the time at giving the best guidance we can, and particularly people who've got uh, the suppression of their immune system for one reason or another. You have one reason. In in South Africa, we have many people, for example, living with HIV, which also suppresses the immune system, much less so if you're on treatment. Um, But uh, if you're not well controlled on your treatment, then your immune system is also affected. We have many millions of people actually living with HIV. So we're asking these questions. The scientists are asking these questions. One of the things that might well happen is that we might well say for people who have a suppression of their immune system, they might require an extra dose. These are called booster doses. Okay. Um, and the research is ongoing to say, what do we recommend? Do we want to boost people who have got these um, conditions that suppress the immune system and give them an extra dose of vaccine to really make sure that their immune system has responded? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, but but that, don't worry, we will let you know. And, and, and we're looking at this data all the time. Uh, a question here on the WhatsApp line. I'm 17 weeks pregnant and want to find out if there are additional side effects from the COVID vaccine for pregnant women. I'm eager to get vaccinated, but worry about potential risks. Yeah, such a good question. And I'm sure many pregnant women who are listening will, will, will want to ask this. The first thing to say to everybody who's thinking of getting pregnant, who is pregnant, is that the, you really need to look after yourselves in the context of, of, of COVID and especially the Delta variant that's more easily transmitted. Why am I saying that? It's because we now know and increasing evidence is suggesting that pregnant women are more prone to be admitted to intensive care, to get severe disease and to die. Now, it's not, it's not, don't, I don't want to alarm everyone, it's not common, 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 not at all, but it's more common in pregnant women than in non-pregnant women. So, so we know that that's a concern. And we also know that COVID uh, increases the risk of having a preterm delivery. Mm-hmm. So for the listener who's asked this question, absolutely right. We are now worldwide encouraging pregnant women to, to have the vaccine. To begin with, we were very cautious because we didn't know enough about the vaccines. But now, as I say, in a way, we have the benefit of the fact that the northern hemisphere countries have rolled out many of these vaccines in large, large numbers, millions and millions, and many pregnant women have had them. So we're very reassured about safety for both the J&J vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. We're very reassured. And at Mm -hmm. 17 weeks uh, I would encourage you to to, to get the vaccine. Um, and as I say, just, just bear in mind that there is an increased risk for pregnant women, both for themselves and their babies. It's not huge. I don't want people to get in a panic, sure. but it's increased compared to non-pregnant and women. What, so encouraging everyone to get the vaccine. And what about um, a breastfeeding, uh, breastfeeding moms and getting the vaccine? Yes. So another good question. No, again, uh, there's no evidence that breastfeeding in, in, uh, for a vaccinated mum is going to do any harm to the infant at all. And we've looked at that and we continue to look at that. So again, would really encourage you to get the vaccine. What we do now know is that newborns can be infected with COVID. They're now, it's not common, not at all. Sure. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, good idea to get the vaccine and the safety signals are good. 
All right. Judy and Westcliff, thank you for holding. Your question for Prof. Reese, please go ahead. Hi. Afternoon. Hi. Um, I have recently um, been in the UK and been in quarantine. I know if I want to go back, looking at the um, website of the UK COVID um, website, one of the, they say that these are recognized um, vaccinations that they will allow you in. And Johnson & Johnson, which as a healthcare worker is the one I've had, is not one of their recognized vaccines. And I wonder what, you know, whether one, if one wants to have a COVID passport as such, should one be um, asking to have Pfizer rather than Johnson & Johnson? Mm. I mean, I've had the Johnson & Johnson, but if it's not recognized, on their website as an NHS-approved vaccine, then how does one get to the UK on the Johnson & Johnson? Uh, Prof. Reese, Judy, touching on, um, I guess, something that we're all in some way thinking about as well, um, COVID uh, or vaccine passports and various regimes for different countries. Um, J&J in the UK, does that ring a bell for you? Yes, it does. And uh, it is a tricky problem at the moment, Judy, because there isn't a a sort of global norm, if you like. And some countries are saying, we'll only let you in without quarantine. They'll ask for a test, quite possibly and quite likely. But they'll also say that they'll only let you in if you've had a vaccine that they are giving and that they recognize. Other countries are saying it has to be a vaccine that's recognized by the World Health Organization. And other countries will recognize a broader set of available vaccines. So there is no global consistency, unfortunately. Mm. Um, In a situation like this, uh, now that the numbers of vaccines are, are available and if, if, if you need to get back to the UK, you can have a discussion with the, your vaccination site and see if there's a possibility that you could get, uh, that they would allow you to have Pfizer. It, the, the, the data that there is no data at the moment on Pfizer as a boost for J&J, there is data on Pfizer boosting Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, Mm. which is in the similar sort of platform to the J&J vaccine. So uh, we are going to be doing studies on this, but um, I I don't, from a safety point of view, I wouldn't anticipate any problems. And I would anticipate that you would get a good immune boost. The problem would be they'd probably want you to have two vaccines because they won't recognize that combination either. So I think uh, you need to have a discussion with a doctor who will talk to a vaccination site and see where you can go. But just to reassure them, because as you mentioned, I'm on a lot of these big WHO committees where we are looking at vaccine passports. We are working with WHO to try and standardize this because it becomes massively unfair uh, for countries, particularly in the African region, where many countries don't even have access to vaccines. So we're trying to try and get a global standard uh, so that it gets easier to travel. All right, um, let's go to Clive and Benoni. I think uh, this will be our final call. Uh, Clive, welcome to the program. Your question for the professor. Yes, professor. Good afternoon. Um, my question is, um, I traveled a couple of months ago. I traveled to Zambia and I got the AstraZeneca vaccine, there, the first dose. But then I wasn't able to go back for the second one. So I wanted to find out if I could um, mix vaccines, if I could get a Pfizer um, mm. from here in South Africa. All right. Thanks for your question, Clive. Prof, your answer. Thanks, Clive. 
Yeah, no, these are all great questions and everyone's asking the right questions. So the one thing I would say about Pfizer and AstraZeneca, unlike Pfizer and the Johnson & Johnson question we just had, is that in the UK, they have given Pfizer to boost AstraZeneca and it's been highly effective. So we do have clinical data and immune, what we call immunogenicity data, looking at the immune response that's very reassuring. And the second thing is that the, uh, there's a discussion, which in fact I'll be joining later, of the Vaccine Ministerial Advisory Committee that's looking at exactly this kind of thing. What can we do? Because many people are coming in and saying, I'm in the situation, Clive, you find yourself in. So again... Uh, from a point of view of do we have clinical and immune response data? Yes, we do. It looks safe. It looks like it would work. Um, and we are now looking at the guideline uh, for, for the country that would allow you to have a booster. But don't worry if the if the, the weeks tick by, because actually sometimes what we're seeing increasingly is that the longer the gap between your first vaccine and your booster, the better the effect. But we are looking at that actively and we will be developing a guideline for people in your situation very quickly. All right. Uh, I'm going to squeeze a final one in. Um, Fundo, thank you for your patience and for holding, but I'm going to ask a question for you. Are there any concerns around um, fertility and uh, vaccines? There's a lot of myths around this, okay. um, uh, which have come from um, a, a set of animal studies in rats where they gave about over a thousand times the dose and they saw a little bit of the vaccine, a tiny percentage of the vaccine in, in the, the ovaries, of, but of no consequence whatsoever. We often in animal studies give very, very large doses when you're trying to explore a vaccine. Mm. Um, and, but, but a very reassuring study was done um, by a doctor who was giving his patients in vitro fertilization um, and uh, looked at uh, whether people who'd been vaccinated and people who hadn't been vaccinated, was there any difference in the outcome yeah. for the women he was caring for in terms of pregnancy outcome? There was no difference. Mm. So uh, we are not worried at all about uh, fertility. There is no evidence whatsoever about fertility. And the last thing I'll say on this point is, you know, there are many myths circulating. Yeah. The more the myth changes, it goes from one thing and then the goalposts just change and the myth changes a little bit more and then it becomes something different. The more you know it's a myth. Mm. On this case, it's a very good question to ask because many women will want to know about this, but I want to be very reassuring. There really is no evidence to suggest that there is an impact on fertility. Prof, uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon, helping us have this masterclass on COVID-19 vaccines. This is unfortunately all the time we have. I feel as though, uh, and I'm quite certain, looking at the SMS line and the number of uh, calls that we got, uh, we need a part two uh, just to (laughs) effectively field all the questions that we've uh, received. But thank you once again for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me and I'd be happy to answer more questions. All right, let's see when and how we can line that up. That, of course, was Professor Helen Rees talking to us about uh, COVID-19 vaccines, uh, answering a lot of the questions, concerns um, and clearing up some myths around the vaccine jab.